You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Alexander Lairman. He is the author of two incredible books. The first book we're going to discuss today is called The Crown in Crisis, Countdown to the Abdication, and that is the abdication of King Edward VIII. We are also going to discuss his follow-up work, The Windsors at War, The Nazi Threat to the Crown. Alex is Zooming from England, which is very kind of him. He lives in Oxford which I was there uh, several months ago. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I should ask you, based on other bios I've read of you, Mr. Larman, has Rose made it to the stage? Rose is shortly going to make it to the stage. She was at her performance class this afternoon, actually. Getting <laughs> <laughs> a castaway in the new show they're doing. So, <laughs> so as I mentioned before, we rarely do this because we don't really post our podcast interviews in any particular order. We do try to tie them to events. So just a few days ago, we had interviewed Christopher Anderson, who wrote a biography of Charles III. So we posted that. But today is May 10th. And one of the most eventful and watershed dates in British history, May 10th, 1940, when Winston Churchill assumes the office of prime minister, the position. Uh, you've written extensively on the World War II period in British history. Please take a few minutes and, and let, let the Leaders and Legends audience know how you feel about Churchill and, and his leadership and his legacy. 
Well, what's quite interesting is I've now written two books which have Churchill as one of their major characters. And it's always quite strange because there are certain people you write about, and Ed Vieth's one of them. You don't feel any particular sense of being awed when you write about them. You feel a sense of you're just writing about somebody who's a historical figure, how they used to be king, doesn't really impress you. Whereas with Churchill, you know that you are writing about this man who has this completely legendary quality. And it's very hard, I think, to actually find a human being underneath. And so what's interesting for me is that in, over the course of the two books, in The Winds at War, we see Churchill as, I think, your, your listeners would generally know him. We see him as a man who is full of principle, a fantastic orator, a wonderful writer, a superb politician of absolute principle and heroism. And there have been attempts to try and go against all this and say that Churchill was this racist, that he was incompetent, blah, blah, blah. Fine. I mean, people can say that if they want. All I would say is the obvious evidence, especially of his behaviour in the Second World War, counts against that. But in the crowning crisis, we have another version of Churchill, which I think is a lesser known Churchill. This is a Churchill who is a politician who has been out of his element for some time. He's not at the top of his game anymore. He's on the back benches. He's a figure who has enormous affection within British life, but is also seen as washed up, has been somebody who's probably just going to shuffle off into retirement quite soon. And we also see that Churchill is very close to King Edward VIII, who's the new king. And part of this closeness means but when it looks like Edward's relationship with Wallace Simpson is going to lead to something which could, press, could, could precipitate his abdication from the throne, we see which side Churchill takes. And Churchill not only takes the king's side, but he does various things while he's on the king's side, which I think you would, you would look at now and you think, this isn't the Winston Churchill that we know and love. This so Winston Churchill who's acting mm. as what he believes to be principal, but he's also an operator. He's also somebody who is, you know, he's appearing in the House of Commons and losing his temper and shouting abuse at people. He's somebody who's doing backroom deals. And he's, I think, at least half tempted by the idea of a role for him as prime minister in this shadowy party known as a king's party. So I think that, yeah, over the course of the two books, you can see a very, on the one hand, you have your traditional Churchill, you have the Churchill that we know and love and respect. Mm -hmm. The other man, the perhaps more interesting man in some regards, this figure who is a bit tainted, and we can see, in fact, that he was a more complex person than history has necessarily recounted. And there are aspects of your book, the second book, The Winters at War, in which you relate how Churchill threatened former King Edward VIII, now Duke of Windsor slash major general in the British army. In other words, Churchill, Churchill was too busy to uh, supplicate the former king. What I find very interesting is his relationship with the Duke of Windsor. It was close while he, well, the Duke of Windsor was Edward VIII. <clears throat> then it was very, very, very strained indeed after Churchill became prime minister. Because as he explicitly said in, in a letter which he later tore up or was repressed, the Duke of Windsor's inclinations are known to be pro-Nazi. And you think that's quite a big statement, isn't it? Because for decades after the Second World War, the, the conversation always was, was the Duke of Windsor a Nazi? Now, if by asking, was he a Nazi, you mean, did he go around in a, in a uniform saluting Hitler? No. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> was he somebody who had, I think, strong Nazi sympathies? I think the answer is yes. <clears throat> because what he believed was that he had this essential... He was. He thought that Hitler was somebody who was impressive. He thought the Nazi regime was something that Britain should have emulated. He liked the idea of a strong leader. He was almost completely German in his bloodlines. Edward VIII was. Yeah. He had seen the horrors of the trenches in World War One. There are lots of reasons for him to say, much like Chamberlain, we can't do this again. Like whatever it takes not to have another World War One. And what they got, ironically, was much worse. But yes, I mean, it, it's a complex thing. And obviously discussing it of a, a, a level and the depth I try and do in the books, it's essentially trying to get into Edward VIII's psyche, trying to understand why he wanted to support Hitler. And much later in life, he said to somebody, I don't think Hitler's such a bad chap, which even after everything that we, that we know, he still had this belief that Hitler was somehow a bit maligned, it was because it was obsessed by Stalin and communism and Bolshevism. And he saw that as the true enemy. He saw Hitler as somebody who was essentially, you know, perhaps he was a bit misguided in a couple of things he did, but his heart was in the right place. And you think your country is fighting against this man. He is causing untold misery and untold devastation, not just to the people who you were once ruling over, but also, you know, they were living in exile in France, and he was obviously seeing the impact of what Hitler and Germany were about to do. And yet, he didn't think it was he didn't think any of it was necessarily his problem. And that's what I think is the key to understanding the character of Edward: that he was so self-involved, he chose to ignore everything around him. He was solipsistic to a degree that we would see as certainly today we'd call them autistic or something like that, because we would not be able to understand otherwise how any human being could be so wrapped up in themselves and care so little for others. But then I suppose that and what both books are intended to be about to an extent is kingship, because the epigraph of Crown and Crisis comes from Richard II. And of course, Richard II is one of the great plays ever written about a man who can't be king. And so that was in a sense... I thought when I was writing about Edward VIII, the real life Edward VIII, he was a man who couldn't be king because he didn't want to be king. And of course, you know, oh, please we, finish, please finish. We've seen countless kings of England who have proved to be useless at it. But I think that nobody else just said, I've had enough, I want to get married, I'm not going to do it anymore, like it was a job. That's why he was so individualistic in all the worst possible ways. In your view, and I'm going to get a little bit ahead here, so yeah. I'll ask you one question on this and then go back. Forgive me. Um, I should say, in respect to Sir Thomas Erpingham, my dissertation uh, thesis or subject, he's the man who arrested Richard II as he tried to come back to London to save his throne from Henry Bolingbroke. Anyway, sorry, anytime we can get an Erpingham reference, we do it. The crowd, the, the public loves it. The yeah. listeners just can't get enough. Love yeah. Did Was Wallace Simpson the excuse that Henry, excuse me, Edward VIII had been looking for to escape the kinship, kingship? In other words, I don't want to be king. I don't want to be king. I can't figure out how not to be king. Oops. I think I just figured out how not to be king. 
No, I don't think that she, I mean, what I have said time and time again, and will continue to say until I stop talking about the drowning crisis, which I, I hope is never incidentally, is that there is this myth propagated at its worst by Madonna in her absolutely terrible film W.E., but it was a it was a great love story between Edward and Wallace, and he gave up the throne for love. And actually, for quite a long time, there was this sentimental belief this was the case. But in fact, I think what it was was that he was known to be an entirely unsuitable character. I mean, he should never have been king. He should always have gone to his younger brother. There should never have been any occasion that he was ever put up for it. Because there's a famous story about the Prime Minister, Danny Baldwin, and his assistant Prime Secretary, Tommy Lassells, talking about him in the 20s. And Lassells said something along the lines of, you know, I hope that he would fall off a horse steeplechase and break his neck. And Baldwin says, God help me, so do I. And there was a real sense, including the fact that in the book, I have a quite a long story about how MI5, if they didn't try and assassinate Edward, they at least stood by while somebody who was known to them tried to assassinate him. So it was very much the case that there were people at the highest echelons of British society who wanted him either dead or gone. And if there's a fascinating story that I get into about how at the height of the application crisis, at MI5, who clearly were not finished with him, bugged his phone. And it's incredible because we hear so much now about phone hacking and phone tapping mm-hmm. and so forth. But it was happening in the 1930s. But there's this man called Tar Thomas Robertson, who was one of MI5's top operatives. And he literally went along to the phone booth by Buckingham Palace. And there, he put a few wires together, and boom, you can listen into the king's private conversations. Now, you see, that's quite strong stuff. And the idea that he did so with full approval of basically everybody, apart from, of course, the king himself. <laughs> it was a very good idea of how he was regarded. Did you... One of the things I got from Crown and Crisis, so the book that focuses on the abdication, yeah, is how much more important the king was, the monarchy was, post-World War I. In other words, Victoria had been queen, 1837, 1901. They'd fought you know, a few wars, but nothing matching even close to the significance as the Great War. Her son becomes Edward VII. He reigns for what, nine years? Not very long. He died in 1910. Uh, his son, eldest son, dies before he can inherit the throne. Prince Collars and Cuffs, uh, Eddie. And so now his second son, George V, becomes king and really does. I, I just read a biography of George V not that long ago. Jamie. Yes, who I'd love to have on the podcast because I, I that book is terrific. And I bought her a biography of Edward VII, too. I just haven't read it. But anyway, the monarchy really becomes part of the British fabric on a populist level, perhaps in ways that it never had because people were rallied to the throne, to the monarchy. And so anticipating that tough times could come back again seemed to me, and please tell me all this is wrong, to magnify the weaknesses and deficiencies of soon to be Edward VIII. In other words, this isn't the 1830s where we can have George the Fourth 
who's locked is he the one who locked his own wife out of his coronation like you can't have these knucklehead <laughs> you can't have these knucklehead kings and queens anymore these playboys these whatever it's too important now and to me that's what world war one that's what i took out of it is world war one has made everything so much more important because we came so close to losing well that's a very interesting observation because the first thing actually I thought while you're saying that was whenever I write a book of this nature, I don't really know what people are going to take out of it. Because obviously, as a historian, you research and you know the narrative and obviously you fill out the narrative and so on. But then when you write, at least the way I write it, is I, I write it like it's a novel. I write it like you're trying to get into the people's heads it yeah. reads that way too. That's why they're so wonderful. That's why your writings are so great. What I try and do is I try, I try and do things like I, I use letters and diary entries, like dialogue, because you know it's people talking to one another, and I use them a lot as well. Because what I don't like actually in reading this kind of book are people who try and paraphrase stuff. Because I think no, no, it's vastly more powerful when you allow your protagonists just to speak with their own words. And if you're essentially trying to say, well, you know so-and-so said this, but no, no, let them speak themselves. So to get back to your point, I didn't have the idea when I was writing Crown Crisis that First World War had particularly affected the standing of monarchy. But of course you're right, because the nature of what it did was it destroyed European monarchy apart from Britain. So what you have in 1935, 1936, is a real sense that every single vested interest in Britain that wants a monarchy to survive, including essentially the monarchy apart from Edward VIII himself, is very, very, very keen. But if you have a bad apple on the throne, that he's cut off as quickly as possible. And this, I think, shows why. I mean, if he, if he abdicated for virtually any other reason... I think there would have been attempts to stop him from abdicating. But in fact, every I mean, Stanley Baldwin didn't want him to abdicate because he saw that it lead to a constitutional crisis. But on the other hand, he could see, first of all, that Edward wanted to abdicate very, very much. And secondly, that you had, in the form of Bertie, future George VI, not necessarily somebody who would do the best job in terms of presentation because he had a terrible stammer, didn't want to be king but somebody who wasn't going to be a threat to national security. Because what I think, what I hope I try and make clear in the crown crisis is that it was a very deliberate choice on my part to start off with Hitler and Ribbentrop together. Because what I always like in a work of history, just as I like it in TV or film, is when you start off and you think, am I in the right place here? Because, you know, the book is called The Crown and Crisis, and you're expecting it to be, you know, you start off a bit of pageantry or, you know, the young life Ed Vip. And said, boom, you're the Nazis and Hitler was saying to Ribbentrop, bring me the English alliance. Now, how is he going to bring Hitler an alliance with England? Are you saying that actually couldn't happen because Hitler completely got it wrong as to what the king did? Yeah, because you, you make that point in the book. It's kind of funny that he didn't know. <laughs> well, it's it's quite interesting because I mean Hitler's in the crowning crisis a bit. I mean, he's in the Windsor War a lot more for obvious reasons. But he emerges, I think, from crowning crisis as almost a comic figure because he doesn't really get a lot of the things going on. And it's the way at one point he describes Wallace as a, a woman of the people who's been forced <laughs> away by a reactionary clique of Marxists and, and Jews. And you think, yeah, that'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, his lens appeared to be that for almost everything. 
what yeah. is failures in judgment, one of many. But but yes, but I mean, you have that integrity of the monarchy as an institution, which I think the First World War really tested it to, to, to the limits. But you also have, I mean, we've had this throughout the 20th century. We've had it for you know many centuries, the question of what the British monarchy actually stands for. And I've been trying to do that in the course of all the books I've written. I think Power and Glory, you really get into the idea of what's the point of a monarchy after World War II. And so I'm looking forward to everyone reading that next year. And I look forward to talking about that review next year as well. But in the crowning crisis, I mean, the title was a, de- a deliberate one. Because on the one hand, let's be quite honest about this. If you put the crown in a title, everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. Thanks to that uh, factually inaccurate television show. But it it really was. I mean, this sounds like some awful thing, but it really was a crowning crisis, not just in terms of Edward's own reputation, but also in terms of what was going to happen subsequently. Because there were definitely times during the abdication crisis where the whole thing could have crumbled. And I think I, I try and say fairly explicitly what these points were. But if Edward had refused to go, if he decided that he was going to marry Wallace and that he was going to stay on the throne, you then see that the government would have collapsed. And then you basically, as somebody says to Edward at one point, if there's to be a new general election, the central thing is going to be your marriage. And so the whole question is going to be one political party, whether it's for Conservatives or Labour, is going to be running on the let the king marry this woman who's already divorced and to be the king's mistress, position is going to have to run against that. And there are going to be a lot of people who are going to say, well, why should we have this? Why should this man have brought down the government? And I think that, I mean, we've never had a French Revolution in Britain. We've never had that kind of uprising. I mean, we had the Civil War. But that was different because that was obviously something that wasn't just, you know, a people's revolt. Whereas this, I think, was very much a time that there was this mood, and I try and capture something of it, not just in words, but also in pictures, because you've got these placards being held by these women saying, it's like, hands off our king and down with Baldwin. So it's a real sense, it was a really febrile sense around the time of the abdication crisis, because you're thinking, what's going to happen? I mean, what on earth is going to be the outcome of all this stuff? You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is... Alexander Larman. We're discussing his two books with a third about to come out. The first one is The Crown in Crisis, Countdown to the Abdication, and that's the abdication of King Edward VIII. And also The Windsors at War, The Nazi Threat to the Crown. Give us your 30-second take, please on the best qualities of Edward VIII. Silence now follows the 30 seconds. Because <laughs> um, you're, very, you're very honest in your books that you think he's rather loathsome, but you're trying to do the historian's dance of like, hey, just because I think he's loathsome doesn't mean that he didn't do good things X or Y. Is there is there anything that you can pull out of him that you find admirable? Well, I'll come back to this in a second because actually I do think about it a lot. But something which I do to my both shame but also interest is I think like every single writer, whether they admit it or not, is if ever anyone puts an Amazon review or a Goodreads review of one of my books, I always read it because I'm genuinely intrigued to see what writers say. 
And it's something that, you know, anybody who's gone out to read my book has actually taken the time to read it and think about it and leave a comment or review, good, bad, or indifferent. I'm always delighted to see all that. And that's something that what I always see is people commenting on what, on what I think about, Ed, about Edward. And obviously everyone assumes that I don't like him. And I don't like him. And that's something that you have to deal with as, as a historian because you have to say, well, ultimately, I am not a fan. And but what's interesting is some people say he's very fair-minded. You know, he's 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 really balanced. Some people say he obviously loathes the man to high heaven. Now, when I started to write *The Crowning Crisis*, I didn't have particularly strong feelings about Edward VIII. He just seemed to me like he was king, in much the same way we say of say James II, he was king. And I became absolutely fascinated. I mean, a hundred percent fascinated because he was essentially somebody who. What I failed to understand about him before was that he's this almost Shakespearean character. He's somebody who, but he, he's Shakespearean not in a way of a Henry V character or even Richard II. It's something beneath that. He was somebody who was so flawed and so many obvious, you know, defects of character and defects of personality. But every single thing that he did wrong was always in that character. So, on the one hand. The case for the defence is, look at his parents, look at his upbringing. Freud would have so much to say about him. There are so, so many things about Wallace that clearly she's giving him something he never had from anybody else. So there's all that. But also, I mean, I think in some sense he comes across better in Crowning Christ than he does in Winters of War. I, mean, I don't know what your opinion of that would be, but I try and say the times that he was generous to people, the times there was some kind of compassion or interest in people, because I think that the ordinary man on the street liked him because he was seen as accessible and because he was seen as quite friendly. And you could you could imagine going for a drink with him. He was somebody who, there was an informality. He was somebody who, he, of course, he liked to be called Sir and bowed to and genuflected <laughs> to. But he wasn't his mother or his father. He was somebody who essentially was, you know, you could imagine having a martini with him at the Café de Paris. So there's that. And then it, it wins the war where he gets more of a kicking, let's be quite honest, but that's the Nazi for you. I really do struggle to say nice things about him. And I think that the thing in the introduction that I say, which most people have cited in their reviews, which I think is probably true, is that there's a line in Crown and Crisis when I list his faults. And some people took me to task for this. They said, you know, you, you've been too harsh on him. You've not been very generous. And I thought, mm, yeah, I've been too generous. Are there, so said, are there things that you didn't include in the book because you thought you didn't have enough room to give it proper context? Things that were critical of the Duke or examples of the Duke of Windsor's narcissistic behavior. And you're like, well, I can't include everything. Well, it's interesting you say that because... Yeah, absolutely loads. I mean, both books could have been double, treble the length. But after a while, all you're doing is telling the same story in different ways. Because mm-hmm. I went to <clears throat> I went through all these archives all over Britain and you know, had some American archive material as well and so on. And you have millions of words. And what you have to do is you have to go through these millions of words. And then you have to run them down to something which is much shorter, much more concise, and something that essentially makes sense in the context of a hundred times 20,000 word book. But you are constantly finding other stories. And there's a lot of stories about Wallace I wanted to include because I find her fascinating. But in the end, she's not the central character. And you've got to think, well, 
you have to have enough of her arc and her story in there for us to really see why he cared about her so much and what the costs of giving her up the throne were. But also you have to leave stuff out. For instance, I briefly talk about the so-called China dossier, which was this rumoured legendary dossier about her sexual exploits in China. You fill a book on that stuff. But this is just supposition and rumour and hearsay. One thing I always said was I know so many royal historians who fill their books full of rubbish. And I thought, right, there's enough stuff which is verifiable fact for me not to have to include any of it. I will only put in stuff in my books that I can get the footnotes, if I can say, this sounds incredible, this sounds unbelievable, I can assure you it's all true, and here's, <laughs> here's the proof of it. The, would it be fair to characterize as, as Prince of Wales, so he was known as David to his family, and I want to make sure that I segue away from this into the King's speech, because for most Americans, that's the reference point for Edward VIII is that movie. And, but is, would it be over exaggerating to say that, that the Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII, was England's first mass media celebrity? Yes, I think that there's probably Ivan Novello and a couple of film stars, but he was probably the person who was most familiar to his countrymen via the medium of newsreel, what via the medium of photography and so on. Radio. Yeah. That. I mean, it, it, if Oscar Wilde had been born a couple of decades later, it would probably have been him, but as it was, it happened to be Edward VIII. And something that's very interesting is that there's a Stephen Spender review of Edward's autobiography in the New York Times in the 1950s, which says of Edward that like Oscar Wilde and like Lord Byron, he was sent into exile by his countrymen. And that's very interesting for me because I've written about Lord Byron in the past. I wonder I want to write about Oscar Wilde since I can find an angle that nobody else has taken. And I wonder if that actually subconsciously I've always been interested in the idea of writing about these people who do defy society and who do go against the grain. Because Edward did. And I think it's the thing that it's a strange idea that when you are somebody who is, has this level of fame and this level of recognition, like Byron did and like Wilde did. But in a sense, almost the, the bubble bursts and you cannot go on anymore. You've become so famous and also notorious. You have to leave the country. You can't be amongst your people anymore. And I, I mean, do we have this so much in, in, in society these days? I mean, I suppose we've had people like, say, a Johnny Depp who gets to that level of fame and then it all implodes. But I think that to have a king who's had this, I mean, it's fairly unique. And I mean, the question, of course, is, will we ever have it again? Most Americans, reference point, and maybe the world's, but I'm going to compliment the Brits by not including them in this uh, supposition. Most people's view or knowledge of Edward VIII uh, is shaped by the King's Speech. What did you think of the movie? And what did you think of how Edward VIII was portrayed in the movie? Well, I've seen it twice. And the first time I saw it was when it came out. And I saw it again when I was writing Crown and Crisis. And I thought of it differently. Because obviously, the first time around, I watched it, as I'm sure most of your listeners watched it, as entertainment. 
And obviously, it's it's a buddy film. It's a relationship between two mismatched men. So it's against this backdrop of other events. And Colin Firth's very good. Jeffrey Rush is better, which is not something people discuss, but there we are. Then I watched it again while I was writing Crown and Crisis because there's always a thing you're thinking, have I left something out? And there's also, you also have to remember, there's a fine line, and this is something that people have commented on, that I thought I knew this story, but I didn't know this. But things that you might think, this is the revelation, this thing I must go very heavy on, Everybody knows it already. So it's all about soft peddling it. But there's stuff in the film that I thought the relationship between Edward and George, or Bertie and David, as they're called, was very well observed because the bullying is certainly there. But also it's the way that Edward's looseness. I mean, Guy Pierce is very good as Edward. He, I think, captures that sense of entitlement and superficial charm and faint psychosis. And Colin Firth, I think, is, I mean, slightly too old, but he's very good as a sort of dutiful, shy, unhappy man. And I think what you have to understand about George VI is he was unhappy. I mean, he loved his wife and his daughters very much, but he did not want to be king. And you just can't imagine the responsibility of having to be king want to be. So I suppose that was in a case what George what Edward had as well. He didn't want to be king. But obviously there, our sympathy has to end for him because... George did it. He saw it through till he died. As Edward just thought, I'll be off now. Thank you. <laughs> but there was never any talk. I haven't read a biography of George VI in a long time. <laughs> but was there ever any talk that he would step aside and allow, is it the Duke of Kent? Is he the third brother? I mean, Gloucester. If I was Gloucester and then Kent. Well, the Duke of Kent was a security risk because he uh, fraternised with Nazis and he had very, he was bisexual. He'd had all sorts of unsuitable liaisons. I mean, he was bad news in a lot of regards. And one thing that I discuss in Winters of War is the circumstances of, of his death because the Royal Archives are a remarkable place to find information because they have literally everything. And I remember asking one day, can I see the past of Duke of Kent? No. Why is that? We don't have any. You're thinking, well, either you genuinely don't have any files about Duke of Kent, <laughs> this stuff is very much not to be seen by the eye of man for any time soon. But um, the Duke of Gloucester was a bit of a buffoon. He was, Ed was called him, when one of his touches of wit, the unknown soldier, because he was somebody who basically didn't really do anything. And at one point, he was serving out in the desert, and he came back and somebody said to him, so, how, how was the desert? He said, well, it's full of sand, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he really wasn't very clever. And ultimately, I mean, the royal family are not very clever people. And that's the thing that those around them, like the Walter Monktons and the Tommy Lassels, who get their day in the sun in the books, they can see their employers and their f- friends are not very, very brilliant men. But of course, why would they be clever? That's the question. Why would you expect these people to be, you know, as they were just middle-of-the-road German aristocrats who've been lifted up to this position through chance and through history? Having the right religion. Yeah. Did George V famously said, it's in the movie, and then I've seen it quoted, I think in... In Baldwin's memoirs, Stanley Baldwin, who was prime minister during this time period, 
where George V, who was the British king during World War I, George V says of his son, after I'm gone, that boy will ruin himself in 12 months. You mentioned Edward VIII's relationship with his parents briefly a few minutes ago. How damaged was Edward VIII? What were his parents like? Because every book I've ever read about Edward VII and his wife, Queen Alexandra, is how they just absolutely doted and spoiled on their grandchildren, who would be Edward VIII and George VI. But that appears to have skipped a generation, or am I overstating it? I think it's something that the royal family have never been much good at showing affection. I mean, they're not a touchy-feely kind of organisation. And so ultimately... I think what it was with George, I mean, Queen Mary especially, she was not somebody who was very good at showing normal human feelings. She was not somebody who was good at showing affection or love or anything like that. But then you look at her children, her five children, and you can see that Princess Mary, George, they grew up relatively normal. You take the Duke of Kent, who didn't. You take... the Bertie, who was who grew up with a great belief in dignity and duty and so forth, but who had health health problems, his appalling stammer. And then I think you have Edward, who was the worst affected of all of them, because he was somebody who it's it's, it's a terrible sort of textbook um, Freudianism. But if he'd had somebody before Wallace who'd actually cared about him and shown him love and affection and anything like that. I don't think this void in his personality would have been quite so pronounced. Because what I find interesting is that Wallace dominated him in every single regard. And she was somebody who, there's all these stories that existed, that I, I, I cite one in Crowning Crisis, of how she behaved towards him. I mean, she treated him like he was absolute dirt. And he let her do it. And I think it was in part, it was a show. It was a show of public obedience because it was her way of demonstrating this hold she had over the man who was king and had been king. And he went along with it because that was what he understood. That's how he saw, you know, affection. He's a rather warped way of doing it. But on the other hand, each to their own. Well, in the movie, in the King's Speech, when George V, I'm going to say dies, I guess we could do a whole podcast on why he was killed and the timing uh, for the newspapers, if you believe the rumors, or I don't even, they may even be not even rumors anymore. They may be proven. But in the movie, when George V dies and Edward VIII goes to hug his mother, she kind of just stares off into space, like, "What do you, what are you doing? Like, what does this mean? Is that, is that, is that a parody or is that accurate?" Well, I mean, it's a rather the thing is, with all these things, is that I would quite like to see these things done exactly as they are, because the stories themselves are so dramatic that I don't see the need for exaggeration. What it was, in fact, was that Ed Vier went absolutely mad, and he was running about and shouting and being hysterical. But then he also, because there's this incident which I think is quite telling, is that the clocks were slightly out of time at Sandhurst, which was something that his father had insisted on. Literally, as soon as his father dies, like, right, I'm changing the time of the clocks. So it's just things like that. Immediately, there was a sense that he'd been waiting for his father. I, mean, I suppose that we all have this to an extent, don't we? But imagine that there's been somebody in your life who you've loved or you've despised or whatever else. 
But when they've gone, I mean, imagine if it's your mother or your father and they've got some item of clothing that you can't stand and you think, right, I can throw that away now. (laughs) With Edward, it was was wanting to get out of the that, that bondage and but of course it's the way he dealt with it. it ended up being a very strange and rather unsatisfying way let's talk for a second please about wallace simpson she was an american she was, she was experienced with a capital e yes uh, in in many ways she was reluctant and you, in your book, The Winters at War, and The Crown and Crisis, especially, I should say, you you make it clear, and it, please push back, that she's like, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't give all this up for me. Much like Queen Mary said, he, he gave up all this for that. One of my all-time favorite quotes. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? Um, no, but she I mean- was, she wasn't like, yeah, you need to tell these people to go to hell. And, you know, I'm going to be queen and we're going to do all these things. It seems to me that she was far more intelligent than he was. Oh, yeah, certainly. All more worldly than than he was. And that she, Wallace, knew better than Edward VIII. Like, this is what's going to happen. I'm happy to go away. Well, I think that she she didn't want to be queen. The crucial thing with her is that she didn't want to be HRH, she didn't want to be queen, she didn't want any of the responsibilities that she was being forced into. Because ultimately, you have to remember, she's a woman from Baltimore. She's not somebody who wanted any of this stuff. She loved the idea of, of all the jewels and the status and all the rest of it. She did not want to be opening you know, churches and things like that and cutting ribbons. She had no interest in any of that stuff. She wanted to essentially to retire into private life. And one of the things I try and get into in The Crowning Crisis is the sense almost of these two parallel stories going on, that she is trying to get out of a relationship. And she, she believed that if she could get out of Edward's clutches, he wouldn't abdicate and that would set her free. But of course, the problem was, was that he was so obsessed by her. And there was nothing that she could have done to stop him. There's a line which I, I quote, which I think he tends to be romantic. It's one of the most chilling things that I've ever read. And it's, it's in him. he says, of course, you can go where you want. You can go to China, you can go to, you can go to Newfoundland, but wherever you go, I shall follow you. And I was thinking, okay, that's absolutely terrifying, <laughs> a stalker's charter. So I think she knew what she was dealing with and who she was dealing with. And I think that we, we see her letters after the abdication, and she, <clears throat> she mainly wrote to her Aunt Bessie, but we can see through these letters there is a sense of scepticism. I mean, what, the question constantly asks is, did she love her husband? And I don't think she particularly did, but they were certainly together. And Because um, what's so interesting is you have a kind of Rashomon thing. You have all these different accounts of people's conversation and behaviour because, you know, you go to a dinner party and eight people are there and seven people are going to walk away with a different impression of that other person. And so we can certainly see of Wallace that people respected her. They didn't necessarily like her, but they respected her intelligence. It was the fact that she was witty. She was sharp, but she was very different to her husband. Are the reports, accusations about her sexual prowess and proclivities are they exaggerated or pretty much on the money and do you think that that was one of the things that helped enrapture edward 
Ah, um, I had some material in crisis, which was, should we say, more explicit about this stuff. And I took it out for precisely the reason I outlined earlier, that it was largely supposition. And I thought, partly you don't want to be having unfounded stuff, partly also, you have to be honest about this, the sort of book that I'm writing I was read by all the family. I don't want it to be a, a top <laughs> show. Only. But yes, her, her, I mean, what I hope I've left in there is enough to make it absolutely clear. Her hold over her was a sexual one. that She dominated him sexually. They're both quite interested in masochistic practices. She was very much a dominatrix figure. That is, I think, about as clear as you can be. At what point did Edward VIII reach no return. I mean, up until he signed, uh, he becomes he becomes king. I think in January of thirty six. Yeah, and then he abdicates in December of thirty six. Absolutely. And but he's never crowned. So what we just saw with Charles the Third never he never had that. But up until he signed the instrument of abdication in December of thirty six, what was the watershed moment where he couldn't turn back? Or could he have just ripped up the instrument of abdication and go, I changed my mind? Well, I always think that the turning point was when Wallace got her divorce. Because I think that up to that point, if Wallace's divorce had failed, then they could never have uh, uh, married. So therefore, she would always have remained his mistress. Now, the royal mistress is quite a common thing. And it has been going on for centuries. I mean, there's a famous story about the Prince Regent, and Mrs. Fitzherbert, and they had a relationship which in many respects was that of Edward and Wallace as well. And a lot of people, such as Stanley Baldwin, could see as long as Wallace is married to somebody else, there is not going to be a constitutional crisis. And of course, the divorce that she obtained was obtained largely through false means because there false evidence given and all sorts of things. You're thinking... So what should have happened is if a divorce should have been quashed for the simple reason that it was essentially a fraud, but it wasn't, and it was granted. And because of this, there was a six-month, if you like, cooling-off period, but that was in October 36. So in April 1937, just before what was intended to be his coronation, Edward would have been free to marry Wallace. So he, at that point, thought, right, I'm I'm going to marry her. And when he was told, you can't marry her and remain king, he said, well, I'm not going to be king anymore. So you think to yourself, right, that's the point. If you want to highlight any moment where it was absolutely obvious that it wasn't going to carry on, that was it. Was his choice to abdicate rather than end his relationship with Wallace, was that choice? I mean, it's obviously unheralded, right, in in English history and British history. Was his decision to relinquish the kingship seen as a surprise they're like okay yeah you've played around with this girl and now it's all well and good but you're king now and grow up and he would go oh yeah i gotta grow up and be king but he didn't per se and he chose her did that decision shock people or did they expect it i think if you have a man on the street you're absolutely shocked by it because unless you were one of the king's social circles, you didn't know until December 1936 what was going on because his relationship with Wallace was kept entirely out of the British press because there is a sense that the British papers did not report the private life of, of the king. So this was something that 
I mean, it seems astonishing now. It seems the idea that the press would ever go along with it. But of course, Edward's friend and in, in some respects his manipulator, Lord Beaverbrook, knew the more build-up there is, the bigger the story will end up being, the more papers will sell. So you can actually see the holding on to this massive story, which only gets bigger when, when the dam breaks and it all comes out for commercial reasons. So yes, it was, uh, <laughs> it was very much the case that when Edward did stop being king, there was this, people on the street were absolutely aghast and absolutely surprised. But that's because it had all been kept out of, of the papers. Nobody knew about it. And so there wasn't, you know, the equivalent of social media back then. There, were, there was no Bush telegram. People genuinely blindsided. Let's move on a little bit to your book, The Windsors at War, The King, His Brother, and a Family Divided. You make a lot of decisions when you write a book. At least that's what all the authors we talk to here on the podcast tell us. And I am taken by the dusk, dust cover photos that you chose for the Windsors at War. Uh, since we only post the audio on this podcast and not the video, uh, please describe those two photos and, and tell us why you chose them, please. Well, I've got quite a good story here, because obviously in America, you have different dust jackets to in Britain. And what I always knew was the two images that I wanted were very straightforward. I wanted to have the image of Edward, Wallace and Hitler. I wanted to have the image of George VI and Queen Elizabeth after the, the bombing of Buckingham Palace. Because I saw those two things essentially summing up the story I was telling. I wanted to have the story of Edward and, and Wallace and their Nazi sympathies and a sense of them going against the royal family. I wanted to have a sense of George and Elizabeth and exactly how, what they had to face. And the American dust jacket, my editors at Martin's Press went along with it straight away, blah, blah. In Britain, I was, I was told fairly straightforward, no, you can't have that. But those are the pictures I want to have. No, you can't have them. They don't work. So in Britain, we have a Dutch jacket picture of George VI, Queen Elizabeth, and Winston Churchill. And I like it very much. I was very happy with it. We tried lots of different images and different pictures ways of doing it, and none of them quite worked until this one, which I'm very happy with. But I do feel that the story that I wanted to tell is in those two images on the front of the American Dust jacket. And so I think that... American listeners, if there are any British listeners, then I'm sorry about that. But I think that you got the better deal. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did too. Is it? How can you have a... a so the dust jacket, in, and we'll move on, but the dust jacket in Britain does not include a picture of Edward VIII? It does, but on the back. It's got, uh, a, rather, got a rather nice colorized picture of, of, of him and Hitler. So it, it's not missing it out. It's just not as prominent as it should be. Was there... Was this an a... a historian's opportunity to prick his subject a little bit. You could have chosen photos that didn't have Edward VIII smiling at Adolf Hitler, but you chose it on purpose and for a purpose. What were they? Well, I think that ultimately the, quest, the single question most people asked me while I was writing and publicizing Crown and Crisis is, was Edward a Nazi sympathizer? And you've got to deal with that head on. Because you can't beat about the bush. You can't think, well, yeah. No, Ed, there's a picture of Edward and Hitler two years before the outbreak of World War II. That is saying everything. I mean, it's the order large, isn't it? A picture tells a thousand words. 
maybe picture tells a hundred thousand words <laughs> in a set. <laughs> if you are in your bookstore and you see Windsor's at War cover, that's a book. <laughs> if you want to read more, then there's a lot more to say. But essentially, that image, those two juxtaposed images together, they say everything. It's the way that it's the look on Edward's face. He's really pleased to see Hitler. He's not there out of obligation. He's not there, you know, he's really pleased. He's really happy, isn't he? He's beating his hero. How much of, I'm going to overstate it, maybe you think I'm not, how much of Edward VIII's Hitler worship or Nazi Germany affection was related to the fear of the Bolsheviks and communism and knowing what they had done to his cousins, the Romanovs. In other words, we don't think about it much today unless you're a history nut, like we all are, but in Bolshevism in the early 20th century, or, you know, after they took over the Russian made it the Soviet union, that was, you were thinking about it all the time. If you're one in one of those classes and they were, it was a huge, huge choice. And Hitler was certainly anti-Bolshevik. Is there any justification for Edward VIII thinking, well, this guy may be not my best friend, but if he's going to take on communism, we got to be with him. I think that what it was was the idea that Edward was anti-Bolshevism in both existential ways because of what happened to the Romanovs and also because he saw it as a threat to world peace and world security. And in many respects, he was right to be. It's not as if what happened in Russia was some sort of beacon of liberty and uh, shining egalitarianism and democracy. But on the other hand, by 1937, you could see what was happening in Germany. You did not have free elections. You did not have treatment of people in any fair or decent way. But for pogroms, there's the anti-Semitism. It was not a country you could look at and think, oh, yes, yes, this is what we must emulate in Britain. So the fact that Edward chose not to see any of this stuff, I mean, okay, when he went to Germany, he would obviously have been looking about and he would have been, you know, he would have been showing only the things we wanted him to see. But unless you were remarkably stupid or just wicked, and we, you know, accept both those things about Edward at one time or another, you would have to notice that this is not the sort of thing which you would actually ever want. And the fact that Ed went along with it at a time that it was obvious what was happening in Europe shows remarkably bad judgment at best. We talked a few minutes ago about how Edward VIII treated his younger brother, Bertie. Yeah. But during the war and between the war and the abdication and George the accession to the throne, you know, the power dynamic shifts so dramatically. How did the two men get along and how is that described in your book, the Windsors at war? Because it seems that Edward VIII is just, he's, he's, the little dog that has a hold of George the sixth leg and he just won't let go. And George is trying to shake him and he can't shake him. It's, it's very interesting. The dynamic between both in terms of power between the two men and the fact that their brothers share the same mother and George is trying to fight a war, a war that if Britain loses means the monarchy is probably gone or if Edward the eighth's fantasies perhaps come true, he comes back to the throne. 
Well, what I suppose I was trying to say, especially in the earlier chapters of Winds of War, when you have these long letters between the two brothers, is a shifting dynamic. Because obviously, when they parted, it was very much a sense that Edward was going to be supportive. He wasn't going to try to influence the new king in any way. But as he always said, I'll be there to help if you need me. And on the one hand, you think, oh, great. You know, he knows the nuts and bolts of a job. There's somebody who's done it. I mean, what a wonderful thing. You know, I can call up the former king. <laughs> the former king's Edward VIII, so he's the last person not to be asking for advice. So you can see that in the letters that are exchanged between them, and actually I've quoted them at length, and I've quoted a lot of them, but there's so much more I could have said. But as we were saying earlier in the podcast, you've got eventually to start cutting stuff because otherwise you end up with a book which is the length of the Bible. And the Bible's a fascinating book, but it's not necessarily one, one you're to read all the time so what i think i tried to say about the relationship between the two is i mean broad brush trick is that makes it sound like it's superficial it's not superficial but essentially what you have to try and sketch quite fast is the way in which the relationship started off amicable became strained then became toxic I mean, it was all down to edward VIII. it's entirely his fault when he was duke of windsor every single thing when you look at the letters you have George VI, who is trying manfully to do a, a good job. And you have his brother, who's either trying to act as the most patronising backseat driver imaginable, or he's just simply saying, I want money. I want the world to have an HRH title. I want, I want, I want. And after a while, I just think to yourself, could you stop wanting? Could you just go away and stop bothering everyone? Because if that had happened, I would have written the book. <laughs> Well, that's the thing that I find so interesting in the movie, The King's Speech. Clearly, that Edward VIII comes off as kind of a bully, right? Bully, making fun of George VI, stammer, and various other things. Uh, were they ever close? And then they drifted apart because of the abdication or Wallace or whatever. But was there a time when they were as brothers tend to be? Well, I think there is a solidarity because I think that they'd all had this the same upbringing. I mean, they'd all been through the same things. And so there was a kind of kinship. They all basically they knew if the bodies were buried. They knew about how the Duke of Kent had behaved and they knew about how that's all been hushed up because it had been far too scandalous for any of this stuff to have got in the public eye. They knew about their father being rather a closed man and their mother being a very closed woman. So I think there is that sense that when you are siblings you do have that shared experience but after all that's not enough and one thing that i i, I hope i deal with him with the war is the shift in the relationship for by the time that war broke out there was a very brief reconciliation of sorts when edward went over to britain and the two brothers saw each other but by 1940 when edward was packed off to the bahamas to basically go into exile again the relationship between him and his brother was an absolutely terrible one. And you can see that his brother would happily not have seen him for years. And he didn't see him for years because he was thought to be so toxic and so dangerous. Oh, you mentioned the Bahamas. The Duke of Windsor was named as a governor general. Is that the title or governor of the Bahamas? And he goes there with uh, Wallace uh, Simpson and they spin about five years there is that correct yeah yeah basically till the end of world war ii um, they come to the united states or they go to the united states they see the president they see other people they are put out of the nazis reach for a reason what would that reason be or reasons be would were they perceived to be that much of a threat 
or that gullible to the intentions of the Nazis? Yes, simply put. I mean, it's one of those things that they'd, they'd been in Portugal and Spain, which are very nominally neutral, absolutely crawling with Nazi agents. And their behaviour had been such that they were seen by Britain as a very great security threat. And all this information was in these files known as the Marburg files. And these files essentially detailed what amounted to treachery. And my theory is, is that if he hadn't been king, Edward would have been sent to prison. Because what was going on is fraternizing with Nazis, passing information to the enemy, either entirely intentionally or semi-intentionally, which was damaging, talking all manner of stuff about Britain, the war effort of the king, which was also damaging. And you think to yourself, given what Oswald Mosley and Diana Mitford went to prison for, no, they didn't, it was, it was if anything worse, what they were doing. So, yes, I think it's absolutely fair to say that Edward and Wallace were sent off to, to the Bahamas to get them out of the way, to stop them being involved with any kind of war, war effort on the side of the Nazis in Europe. And so everyone, everyone could, could forget about them. And of course, what I find blackly hilarious is that they got to the Bahamas and they found Nazi sympathizers, which. <laughs> Did you you mentioned Edwards the quote Edwards quote a decade or so after World War II where he says you know I really don't think Hitler was such a bad chap I'm paraphrasing do you get a sense of when and maybe it'll be in your third book when Edward was cognizant of the dimensions of the Holocaust and did that change his mind at all. And actually, no, I, I don't have that in the third book. I mean, there's not so that it won't make it in there, but, but there isn't a letter or a document anywhere where he ever deals with that. So it's not so yeah, it's several anti-Semitic comments that come out in books and articles you read about him. But we don't have any record of his saying the Holocaust was a bad thing. We don't have any record of his saying the Holocaust was a good thing. We have a lot of letters about his feelings about communism, Bolshevism, blah, 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 you know, before, during and after the Second World War. We don't have very much at all about fascism or, or Hitler. I mean, we have that quote, but he, it wasn't something that he discussed. And I think that ultimately, you, you make up your own mind. I mean, do, do we think that he was looking at the, uh, the Holocaust yeah, wasn't that bad? Or do we think that, like, like anyone, he was shocked by it? Because one person who was an enormous help for both Winters of the War and Granny Crisis was Philip Ziegler, who died a few weeks ago, sadly. And he was Edward's authorised biographer. So he probably knew, while I was writing the book, he probably knew Edward better than anybody alive. And it was fascinating to talk to him because he, he was very balanced and very fair about Edward. He, he, I don't think he liked him very much. And he said if Edward had known about Belson, he would have been horrified. He would have seen that as an atrocity. But he would have questioned it. He would have questioned if it was true, if it was an exaggeration, if it was propaganda. And that's the thing, the thing about Edward that... <laughs> I mean, because people, people have asked me, was he evil? So no, he wasn't evil. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't Hitler. He wasn't somebody who deserved to be shot. He didn't deserve to be hanged. But he was somebody of, he, he was bad. I think that's a crucial <laughs> distinction you have to make. I would say he was malignantly clueless. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Did, uh, you mentioned his, we talked about his relationship with George V. What about his, what was Edward VIII's relationship with Queen Mary? Because there are some brutal letters that go between the two of them. 
And what was Edward VIII's relationship with Queen Elizabeth, the wife of George VI? Because they, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth at some point seem like received the, the most wrath. Because, you know, Edward VIII, as you know, his wrath was always permanent, somewhat cyclical, depending on the person. He, he hated, he argued with Churchill, he argued with the king, he argued with lots of people. What was his relationship like with those two women? Well, with his mother, it's, it's very interesting because I think there was a series of relationships, of, of shifts in that dynamic. That while he was king, she was very respectful towards him in the formal way because she obviously believed that one should respect one's king. In fact, he was her son, had very little to do with it. But there was enormous tension between, because obviously she thought he was a dilettante, didn't take his responsibility seriously. And you can see the letters were exchanged between the two of them after the abdication, that he he fantasised for a short time that she'd been supportive and that she liked Wallace and everything was going to be okay. And when it became very clear that she didn't support him, that she was horrified and she, as you say, to give up all this for that is a fairly damning line. He became angrier and angrier and angrier. And then she, in turn, became angry as well. And a lot of the letters that you can see, very explicit letters. I mean, if you were Peter Morgan, the screenwriter of The Crown, you couldn't have written them better. Because what I find fascinating is that you've got these letters of people saying very clearly what's on their mind, precisely why they feel how they do, how the other person has made them feel. And it's brilliant because it gives you absolute crystal clear insight into a psychological state. And there's a, a deep level of resentment and anger and mistrust on both sides. Now, as for Queen Elizabeth, something that I found during my research was there's a letter that she wrote to the King's private secretary, Alec Harding. And in it, she talks about how essentially she doesn't trust or like the Duke of Windsor, but she says of him, he's looking younger and more beautiful than ever. And of course, one of the abiding stories, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's always been rumoured, was that she was planning to marry him because obviously he was the glamorous one. He was the, the one who was king, going to be king. And he wasn't interested. So she went for his brother instead. So you can see in that there was a feeling on her side, almost of rejection, almost of, you know, she nearly got the prize and didn't. And then on his side, I don't think he liked her very much because I think he saw her because she despised Wallace. Wallace despised her. And the two of them were always at each other's throats. So there wasn't a lot of love lost between these members of the royal family. I mean, it was certainly a situation <laughs> where there was tension. After, was- after George, excuse me, after Edward becomes king in January of 36, did Queen Mary and Wallace have any interaction until Mary's death in 53, maybe? Never any direct interaction. I mean, they never had any before. I mean, she, she was once introduced to... Wallace was once introduced to Queen Mary at, at the Buckingham Palace Garden Party while George V was alive. Yeah. And she avoided saying anything directly to her. And they never exchanged any letters. There was never any correspondence. I mean, Queen Mary essentially behaved as if Wallace didn't exist. There are a few very, very, very grudging references to remember me to your wife and things like that. But the most cold, it was, you know, they were not things were taken remotely seriously. Go ahead, please finish, because I want to ask you a question about that. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, but so ultimately, yes, it was a relationship of, of complete estrangement, and uh, Wallace hated Mary. Mary hated Wallace. So I don't think there was any uh, possibility of a rapprochement there. Could you argue, though, that this is an issue in which you could kind of see Edward Eight's point of view? Like, this is my wife. Like, be nice to my wife. She's never done anything to you. I'm the one who made the decision to abdicate. She never told me I needed to, never asked me to. So why can't you just be nice to my wife? I mean, would Edward VIII have a point there? I mean, you you can look at it and you can think, well, I mean, what I've always tried to do is to say, well, what what is Edward's perspective here? I mean, you know, if we're going to take his side for a moment, what is action? Because, yeah. You know, you may have to from that you love very much. She's making you happy in a slightly unconventional way, admittedly, but she's this person who's given you all these things that you could want. And you think, well, yeah, perhaps she should have been more understanding, perhaps on a human level. She should have understood what her son actually wanted, that it was going to save him on a personal, if not on a regal level. But then said against this, you're not a free agent if you're king. You can't just go and behave as if you're, you know, the CEO of a business. It's not like that. It is a life sentence of a possibility of parole, as I say in one of the books. And it's something that essentially Edward knew this. He would have known it from an early age. And there are upsides as well. I mean, there are, you know, advantages to the fact that you are king. I mean, there's wealth, privilege, status. I mean, things that you could never imagine having in any other sphere of life. So, yeah, you have to accept that you play along with the rules and then you get the benefits. You can't just have a benefits but none of the, you know, none of the downsides, but Edward genuinely believed mm-hmm. that's what he deserved. And he genuinely thought, especially after the abdication, he was going to get all the upsides of being king, all the wealth, all the power, the privilege, none of the boring, you know, red boxes and everything else. <laughs> Truth be very, very wrong about that. <laughs> Let me ask one more question before we get to the five questions we ask all of our guests here on the podcast. We're joined by Alexander Larman discussing his books, The Crown in Crisis, Countdown to the Abdication, and The Windsors at War, The Nazi Threat to the Crown. One of the questions I have asked other historians, British historians, especially of the Tudor Stuart variety, your friends. What's the most impactful dynasty in the history of British monarchy? One of the answers I received was the Windsors, which was somewhat surprising to me, obviously, because, you know, they don't have as much power as the Plantagenets or the Yorkists or whomever, especially the Tudors. Would you put them, the Windsor dynasty, uh, which started in the depths of World War One till this present day, would you put them... Up that high in terms of George the Sixth, did he save the monarchy? And we saw what happened in the celebrations for Charles the Third. Is there a case to be made for the Windsors being the most important dynasty? Well, I've written about two different sets of the royal family. I've written about the Stuarts, specifically Charles the Second. My first and second books were, if not directly about him, about the Caroline Age and Restoration. And now I've written two books about the Windsors with a third on the way. And I will carry on writing books about the Windsors until people won't let me write about them anymore. And I don't think I've got any more to say about the Charles and his and the Stuarts, because I think that ultimately I look at it from a perspective of, if not quite entertainment, 
from a perspective of consequence. And to say the Windsors were hugely consequential is correct. What you can see is modernity has impinged on monarchy, especially the British monarchy, in a way they could never have anticipated. Because when Victoria was queen, it was just the queen was as fixed a mark as the deity. There was no possibility there would ever not be an England, not be an empire, not be a, a king or a queen. Then Edward came along and he tore all that up. He tore up the ideas of what you expect from monarchy. So ultimately, the fact that George VI steadied the ship, as he put it, steadied a, a rocking ship, and then the Elizabeth II, the greatest monarch that Britain ever had, certainly the longest serving, you can see that the Windsors have had an awful lot of drama and an awful loss of event against this backdrop of, of a changing world. So ultimately, yes, I'd say the Windsors are hugely consequential in a way that certainly there have been other dynasties of Plantagenets, the Tudors, the Stuarts, and all the others. But what we can see of the Windsors, and we see it to this day, I'm speaking to you, you know, a matter of a few days after the coronation, is this determination not to go quietly into that good night, but to, but to carry on and to make sure that they are still clinging on to monarchy in a world that's basically without kings these days. Reach the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Alex, are you ready? I am. What was your first job? <laughs> My first proper job was as a, uh, a writer on British GQ magazine. It's a very unique answer. Very unique answer. Number two, what was your first concert? It was seeing the band The Divine Comedy. There's a band called The Divine Comedy? Excellent Irish band called The Divine Comedy. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Um, Evelyn Wars Decline and Fall. How talented. I mean, really, some of these historians you've been talking about on the podcast are just Philip Ziegler. Brilliant. Brilliant. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Crucifixion of Christ, I'll say. It's hell of a town. Crucifixion as opposed to the resurrection? <laughs> Historical event. <laughs> Point taken. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Tom Stoppard. He's an absolutely brilliant man. And I've had the pleasure of meeting him very briefly twice. And I just think that he's probably the last remaining genius, literary genius that, that we have. And after he's gone, I just think that the world would be a much sadder, a much quieter place. Let me ask a sixth question, please. If you could have two hours off the record with either George the Sixth or Edward the Eighth, whom would you choose? I think you know my answer. Of course, it'd be Edward the Eighth every time. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be able to get in a word from George the Sixth anyway, would I? <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise. And sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, the oldest Irish bar in Indianapolis, and NF 
NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest, Alexander Larman. His books are The Windsors at War, The Nazi Threat to the Crown, and The Crown in Crisis, Countdown to Education. Your books are wonderful. You are terrific and generous podcast guests. Get to writing that third book. I can't rate wait to read it and i can't wait to ask you about it thank you for your time it's been a wonderful conversation i'm thrilled thank you so much robert it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com that's robert at veteranstrategies.com Thank you.